everything that could go wrong did go wrong. I bought this place and I started to renovate it. Someone broke in and poured the remnants of paint all over the oh, floors. Great. I had to start again. Then, because it was my property, I thought, I can manage it better than a professional, so I don't need a property manager. And so there was greed and ego involved. Oh, okay. um, and so it didn't rent for three months because I was asking more than the market. And I remember saying to myself, this investing is ridiculous. Like, who would do this? <laughs> and my wife, Christine, she just sat back and watched me. Welcome to Getting to the Heart of Business, brought to you by The Online Co, where we believe the best way to help small and medium businesses grow is by putting people first. I'm James Parnwell, and in this episode, we sit down with Steve Waters from Wright Property Group. He's a leading investment property expert who often pops up in the media to share his insights on the real estate market. He's an industry pioneer who has negotiated over 5,000 property deals worth more than a billion dollars. And as you've just heard, the story of how he got started in property investment is a classic case of trial and error. My co-host today and marketing pro is Jess Galuso. G'day, Jess. Hey, James. Tell me, have you ever invested in property? I have. I have. And how did it go? Uh, it was a case of a bit of strategy and a bit of luck. <laughs> more was, luck than strategy or uh, more I'd strategy than luck? Look, I'd say it's probably, upon reflection, it would definitely be more luck than strategy. Right. So the, the first investment property that my husband and I bought, uh, we purchased when we were fairly young. Uh, we had a bit of an idea about where we wanted to buy. That was based on what we could afford. Yeah. So we went, okay, let's try and find the best location within this particular suburb. It's got a lake view. This will be good. <laughs> turns out we found a pretty good location and it's doing fairly well for us. Well, that's good news. <laughs> I guess Steve Waters' whole thing is that for everybody who's gotten lucky, there might be another nine that have been unlucky. And he's all about strategy and making sure we get the right property at the right time. Hence the name, Right Property Group. The surprising thing about Steve is that even though he's seen about a billion dollars cross his desk, he doesn't lose sleep at night worrying about all those zeros. That's because he clearly knows his industry inside and out. He also knows more than a thing or two about running a successful business. Steve, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure to be here. Now, you've been in business or self-employed pretty much your whole life. And you've even said you're probably unemployable. And I get that because I'm the same and I think who would employ me or who would yeah. I work for? <laughs> it, because I have been even from a self-employed family. And so I think it's just wired in me from a DNA point of view. And whilst I might have had a month here or six months there working for someone else as a kid, right. uh, if I look at myself today, I'd really struggle getting a job. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I think a lot of um, self-employed people would really identify. Yeah. Well, I certainly do. Yeah. So uh, you were raised in a business family. Yeah. So our, our business or the family's business, we used to export beef and sheep around the world and it's been doing it for many years uh, and that was my path that's where I was going to go was into the agricultural industry as well uh, but I met a girl and okay. uh, the, who's now my wife and this is where the business started because she was doing something that we do today uh, and I just didn't want the the early starts of agriculture and the the what if at the end of the day okay. the whole all the, the risk in agriculture well and it's out of your hand because yeah. it's it's about the weather Right. Um, and you can't control that. Yeah. And so obviously there's commodity prices as well. It's a great lifestyle, um, but I'm just not sure that it was the lifestyle that I wanted for the rest of my life. So sitting at the, the dinner table as a kid, mum and dad are talking business. 
Yeah. You're immersed in a culture of trade and the agricultural business? Yeah, it was interesting, but I, I didn't get to sit at the dinner table a lot. I went to a, a boarding school okay. uh, from the age of eight through till I finished. So it was school holidays, really. Um, but it enabled me to eavesdrop, if you will. Yes. And just, I mean, maybe subconsciously just learn. It was never something that I sought out to say, well, I'm going to listen to every conversation that I have so I can learn, because as a kid, that's the furthest thing from your mind. Um, but as I got a little older, into my teenage years, then I started to deliberately listen. And in fact, I even remember on school holidays just going into my father's office and just being there to see how he handled, you know, whether it be conflict, opportunity, deal. And I, and, you know, I owe a lot to him and, and my mother. So, so you really kind of learn by immersion. You just mm. kind of around people that think a certain way and act a certain way. Yeah, and it's and not even just family, friends and their families. You know, and it's certainly not the only way to do it. Uh, but for me, it was it was a way for me to achieve what I wanted to as a reward slash effort. That was how I thought, and as time went on, I knew it wasn't the case. And what I meant by that was, well, if I'm self-employed. The harder I work, the more money I make. Okay. And as we all know, that's not exactly how it works. Not, not quite true, yes. It's hard and smart. and um, Yeah, and that's a live and learn scenario. Yeah. You can read every book in the world. Um, you can talk to everyone in the world. But until you've got skin in the game and hurt oh, okay. money, then everything is amplified. The, your perception, your senses are heightened. When it's your money, yeah, on the table. and you're lying in bed going, hmm, yeah, I could lose all that, yeah. <laughs> and for some people, it's not their, you know, their bag. That's you know, some people no. just need to have the security of a Friday paycheck, and that's fine. Absolutely. And then for some people, you know, they're they're different, and they'll risk it. So you need a certain risk tolerance. Would you say you're a high risk person, a medium risk, a low risk? Where would oh, you sit a, on the spectrum? It's a great question. Um, I'm not high risk. I that doesn't let me sleep at night. Yeah, and it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It uh, because with high risk you can have massive wins, but you could potentially have massive right. losses as well. Yeah, the downside. Yeah, and that's just not my personality. It's not my risk profile. Um, I am, however, all about change and trying new things. But I'm also very quick to cut hard, cut early. Okay. If I identify that that particular change is not going to work and I don't mean different businesses I mean changes within the business uh, as an example but I think my my tolerance for risk is quite low um, in fact it's very low has it got lower over the years yeah absolutely the, the older <laughs> you <too>. get <laughs> yeah the older you get the uh, I think the tolerance tends to contract however you often see people the older they get they potentially clutch more as well. Because they're more desperate. They're more desperate. And I, I refer to that as the, the race eight get out stake. So when you go to the horse races and you've lost all your money on races <laughs> one to seven, you put everything you've got left on race eight long shot, um, hoping to get some back. And we see that within our industry. We see that quite yeah. a lot. And unfortunately, there are people that target those people as well, which is um, a shame. Okay. Um, now, your dad had quite a large business with a lot of employees. So, mm -hmm. so how many people were working for him? Uh, probably up to a 1,000 at one stage. Right. So that's a serious business. It was, He's yep. gone past small and medium. He's, he's in the big end. Yeah, but he started everything that he did, he learned. He grew up trapping rabbits to survive. That was his first business, raiding the trees for pigeon eggs 
so that they could eat. Wow. Um, and trap rabbits and then sell them and, and it just grew and it grew. So like as a kid he was trapping rabbits? Yeah, or? as a kid. Yeah, um, good on him. So there was an entrepreneurial thing happening right from early on. I think it was entrepreneurial slash survival. A, okay. com- a combination of both. Um, and so it's probably that attitude, hopefully, that rubbed off onto me as well. Because as, gotcha. a, as a business owner, it's, there's got to be a competitive streak in you yes. as well. And a part of you needs to do whatever it takes. Well, if, as a business owner, you're going to experience that at one point or another. You have to do whatever it takes. Yeah. Um, and it's just important that you identify that. And I think it rubbed off from him onto me, hopefully. Yeah, so being around him, probably a bit of genetics too, right? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> but I don't know, maybe, maybe sometimes he'd disagree, I don't know. Yeah, so then you, you met your wife. Correct. And she's dabbling in property investment or is she like deep no, she, in? She, was, uh, she had already had a few properties. Okay. And because my family business was all about numbers, she showed me the numbers of what she was doing and I couldn't make them fall over. Like no matter how negative, so I you're was. attacking the numbers, correct? Saying uh, I want to find the hole, and you couldn't I find was, the hole. I was looking for a reason not to do it. Okay, um, <laughs> to be honest with you, and I couldn't. And so, uh, being the bravado idiot that I was, <laughs> I said, "Okay, this sounds really, really good. Go out and find me a property." And within uh, maybe 24 hours, she said, "I've found one for you." And I just went to water. Like it was like, no, this is too quick. This is too, too much. It's too easy. Too yeah. easy. Too good to be true. <laughs> yeah, I hardly know you. <laughs> you know, all that sort of business. Um, but anyway, I did it. And I still attacked it with my filters um, of negativity, if you will. Okay. Well, some people call me negative. I'm, I think I prefer to classify it as conservative. Um, and I did it. And that was the end and the beginning of everything. At the same time, I just then did it again very quickly. And then I went all in. Okay, so you've, you've used the word negative. Are you really talking about analysing contingencies and looking at potentials for way, ways for it to go bad so you can mitigate that risk? Yeah, and I, I say that maybe the word negative tongue-in-cheek really yeah, because yeah, yeah. I think that's what some people might perceive me to be, not in life but in, in business, uh, but it's not. I'm conservative, but I'm also tactically aggressive Okay. when I need to be. Um, and I'm patient. But that's all learnt yeah. as well. Uh, and so learnt from early on with your family and then applied into a different market? Theoretically, it was learnt from my family. So I'd sit back and watch. And then I worked oh, okay. within the family business. And you know, I had some managerial roles in that as I worked my way up at, at a very early age. But it was still not real because it was the family's money. It wasn't entirely mine. We come back to skin in the game, don't Skin we? in the game. Yeah. And... I learned to be sort of patient and tactically aggressive because I think inherently that's my nature anyway. I think you have to play with what you are and utilise that to the best of your advantage. Right. Uh, and then... Act in line with your identity. Who, correct. How you work. Yeah. yeah. And you can learn other traits in terms of, well, I need to be more aggressive or I need to be more fortuitous or whatever it may be. Um, but that comes with time. It's not something that you can just wake up one day and say, well, this is what I'm going to be. It's a gradual process. I think that's important, identifying who you are and how you work, as opposed to potentially reading a book or you know watching a TED talk about a guru and saying, that's what I need to do, that's how it works. And that's possibly their yeah. method. But I think they've got a place as well. Like a, a, you, you need to surround yourself with, you know, whether it be narrative or people that yeah. are on the positive side of life and 
rather than saying that's impossible, that's impossible, that's impossible. Gotcha. But it will come a point in time where you'll either get analysis paralysis or, yeah, you'll, be a semi- okay. or you'll be a seminar <laughs> junkie, but you'll never make right. that next step. You'll never take that next step to see, well, it is possible. I'm going to put all this theory into practice. Yeah. And then you'll need to rewrite the book because theoretic, theori- theory is different from practice. From practice. Totally. So when you say tactically aggressive, is, is that what you mean, getting skin in the game? Yep. Um, to a degree it does, but it's more, I think for me, it's more about um, if you take the market that we have today in terms of our industry uh, being real estate, we've been patient for a long time for this moment in time. Um, we've still been creating our portfolios, but now is, or at the beginning of COVID is a great example, is, was to be tactically aggressive. The media was saying that the market would react one way, but our experience showed us that it was going to be polar opposite in the positive. And so we just went hard and early. Um, Same thing as we did during the GFC and just after it. So there are times when you need to back yourself. So it doesn't matter whether you're a, I don't know, you could be a plumber and you might need to resource up because you see a housing boom about to happen. And so you want to be at the front of the game, not chasing the tail of the of the market, whatever it may be. Yeah, now I hear you. Uh, now I definitely want to dig into this moment, but I'd like to go back to that first property that Chris found for you. Yep. And you got in the game. You got skin in the game. How did it go? It went really well. It, uh, as I said, I had everything that could go wrong did go wrong, which was okay. So I had, uh, you know, I bought this place and I started to renovate it. Uh, someone broke in and poured the remnants of paint all over the floor, oh, so I had to start again. Uh, then, because it was my property, I thought, I can manage it better than a professional, so I don't need a property manager, and it's got to be worth more per week because it's mine. Yeah. And so there was greed and ego involved. Oh, okay. Um, and so it didn't rent for three months because I was asking more than the market. And I remember saying to myself, this this investing is ridiculous. Like, who would do this? Um, anyways, then, and my wife, Christine, she just sat back and watched me. Okay. Just, you know, she'd already she given patient. me the instruction yeah. that she just, my personality dictates I've got to learn myself. Um, you know, don't gotcha. touch the hot plate. I'll touch yeah. the hot plate. It's, uh, so when I bought my property back down to, to where the market sat, it rented within a day and I got a professional involved, literally within 24 hours. Okay. Those tenants stayed there for the next eight years and in terms of value, it doubled in 12 months. So I was pretty stoked. So that's a pretty spectacular result. I'm fascinated by greed and ego because I think as business people, they're two things that yeah. trip us up all the time. To, to go from, I can do this, this is my property so it's worth more, I can rent for more, etc. to uh, I've got to get a professional. What had to take place? Did the bank balance hurt you? Yeah, I, I was burning <laughs> money out of my pocket. It, yeah. um, was it that simple? Yeah, it was. But I think it was. I came to the realisation <clears throat> that I needed to implement a team of professionals that do this every day yeah. to actually take control. I'm still glad I went through it because, in hindsight... Because um, it's a really good way for me to not to emulate the same mistakes. But secondly, in terms of my business, is to give the guidance to the clients. It's not about this is what you need to do to succeed. It's also equally important, don't do this because I tried it and it doesn't work and you'll burn money. Okay. So it's not always good news stories. It's, the education is also yes. highlighting 
what hasn't worked. This is what can go wrong. Correct. Which always comes down to, as you mentioned, greed and ego. In fact, it doesn't matter what the asset class is. Um, it could be pencils, property, bananas, whatever it may be. Greed and ego is at the root <laughs> of all failures. Yeah, they say pride leads to a fall. And, and I guess you've got to have the fall before you go, oh, okay, I'm not super Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> um, do you think you got lucky with that first property or do you think you had the tactics and the analysis right? And I had nothing. It was my wife or then okay, girlfriend. Okay, <laughs> um, thank you, Chris. <laughs> yeah, it was literally because this is my first foray into property and it was a hell of a lot of money back then. She, she did all the diligence. She did all the data research. She identified everything and I just said yes with gritted teeth yeah it, um, and, it, and it worked out but it worked out because of her knowledge okay so she was replicating what she had already done uh for me and it was after that that once again now that you've got skin in the game and everything is heightened or your senses are heightened suddenly every scent every screw every lick of paint made a difference and so you absorb that knowledge right more so and then once it was rented out, as I said earlier on, I just sort of doubled down and, and went again and again. But even though I had some quick wins, I wasn't actually budgeting on that. I'm, I was budgeting 20 years okay. ahead. I just took the quick win anyways. Right. Uh, so do you feel that if that first property, because markets stagnate, right? Mm. In a different time, it could potentially held its value where it was for a few years. Mm. Do you think that would have changed your perspective or you think that's probably what you had in mind and you in the first place? Yeah, because I'm conservative, I had that in mind anyway. Like I, when I say I didn't do any diligence, I did. Um, and you know, I knew that historically properties went up by X amount of money, not in a lineal fashion, but the trajectory yeah. was up. Yeah. Um, I knew that the rent would cover the mortgage um, and I looked at the worst case scenario, what happens if interest rates went up and... Uh, rents went down what would that gap be between income and expenditure and does it mean I've got to stack shelves at Woolies and eat two minute noodles could I can I survive it and the answer was yes so that was potentially the the, the tactical part of it yeah the aggressive part was the fact that the market had been doing nothing for prior uh, five yes. years so there was even though I'm conservative I also saw the opportunity to say well we know that historically it'll do something everybody needs a roof over their head to survive um, yeah, I'm not, not everybody needs a BHP share, but they need a roof over their head. That's right. And so I knew that over time it would do something. I didn't uh, count on it. I wasn't required for it to do something immediately. I'm all about the long game. It's yeah. not, but I will take the short-term wins if they... Of course. They yeah. So you positioned yourself for the wins, but mitigated against the, Correct. the losses. And it's always about... The loss is always about cash flow. I don't care what anyone says. You know, that saying, cash flow is king... To a degree, that's true. It's more about cash flow management is king. Yeah. And you've only got to look at every failure. It's not because of an equity position. It's always because of a lack of cash flow that forces that next move, whether it be to exit the business, sell the home, sell the car, whatever it may be. Yes. So uh, business people know that. There's horrendous statistics of you know new businesses failing in the first yeah. two years. If you've made it past that, it's probably because you understand cash flow Correct. and investing in properties no different well in fact it's a good analogy we see every single property as a business it has its own cost center it has its own income and so how do we minimize costs and increase cash flow which is you know the rent yeah so we isolate those components therefore treating every single property as its own unique little business 
I talk to business owners every day about their marketing and the consistent feedback is that they feel lost in the digital marketing world. Usually they've got someone to have a go at some SEO, Google Ads or social media, but they often don't know what work is even being done and they can't see any results. This is where our team and I can help with our digital marketing playbook. Over the past 10 years, we've designed a process to help you achieve your business goals by speaking to the right people at the right time with the right message. We analyze your competitors, create the unique voice you should use in the marketplace, map out your customer's path to purchase, and then create expert search, social media, and nurture strategies to attract the right people to your business. This is all underpinned by our belief that the best digital marketing puts people first. If you need help to get your marketing on the straight and narrow, why not drop us a line at theonlineco.net. You can have a quick chat to one of our team to see how we can best support you in growing your business. So then the GFC comes along and I'm really interested in your insights into the GFC and COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, well the GFC was probably always going to happen because it was a stage where and we refer to it as giggle money, the world was living large beyond mm. its means. To get credit was literally how much do you want? Sign here, press hard, third copy's yours, there's yeah. your money. <laughs> <laughs> and it can't, that has no sustainability. Um, and we knew that credit was going to be tight and when credit gets tight, so, d- so too does the risk appetite of everybody, whether it be a consumer for a new fridge or a car, through to an investor or a business owner. Yeah. Um, and so we battened down the hatches for a very small moment of time. In other words, we looked after our cash flow, made sure our leases were in place. Then as the GFC unwound, we saw that there was value that we could not walk past in terms of all asset values, no matter what the asset was across the world, dropped during the GFC. The cash flow didn't. We also recognised that our cash flow in our asset class would actually increase during the crisis because everybody compounds down in their livelihood but they still need to rent over their head. There's no construction, so supply and demand kicks in. It was a just a pretty simple... Um, so, so just to simplify, you're saying the, the price of housing went down? Yeah, the price of housing yeah. went down. Which meant you, if you were positioned well, you could purchase... Correct. ...bargains. Yep, and psychologically, though, if you were, it might have hurt some people saying, yes. well, my asset value has gone down. But that's a short-term way to look at it. And as we said to all our clients at that stage, and now history shows that we were right, is that cash flow, which enables you to control the asset safely, would go up. That happened. Um, And we also, those that could control the properties, I'm talking about the general consumer here, well, if you fast forward to today, those properties are worth 300% more. Yeah. And this is the power of time. The COVID crisis was very, very similar. We knew that the outcome was going to be very similar albeit the trigger points were different because once again everybody still needs a roof over their head and we were already identifying that there was an undersupply of accommodation in Australia that's been building up over the last three years. COVID has just amplified that position so as it stands today if you're a a renter trying to go and get a property that's not a unit that's a house you're in a very competitive market. We've seen all our rents go up all of them without fail. Right. And we've now seen that we're in, the, in a potential boom scenario. It's February 2021 as we're recording this. We rewind 12 months and the mm. whole COVID thing was breaking. This is not what the media was saying. Not at all. I spoke to a journalist once and I said, 
why do you only highlight the bad stuff? Her expression was, if it bleeds, it leads. If it's bad news, it leads the front page of the newspaper. And even now with this crisis, anyone who wanted their time in the spotlight was saying the market is going to drop by 30%. And we and a few other people were very public, very adamant that that is not going to happen. In fact, the market's going to go up. I had a journalist. They rang probably June last year. Give me all the bad news stories. What's happening? Where's the blood on the streets? Yeah. I said, there is none. I can tell you what's really happening and it's actually good news. And their words to me, we don't want that. Yeah. Yep. Then December last year, they rang me back and they said, we'll have that good news story. Okay. <laughs> I said, no, not this time. Where it, where it has for all businesses a major effect is journalism and the way that it's uh, disseminated is far different today clearly than what it was years ago. Now it's instant thanks yep. to social media. And so the narrative can be shaped quite quickly, quite easily by mass so a really good example when we're in February is that I think it's Game Boy, the shares over in... Oh, in GameStop. Yeah, GameStop yeah, yeah, the so computer game retailer, yeah. In its real world, if you go back 15 years ago, that would have been the absolute example of insider trading. It's just that now that it's all over social media and collectively the collaboration to influence stock is okay. And the same is within business today. If you've got smart marketing, you've got the right platforms, whether it be the the different social media platforms and what have you, then you're in with a real chance. That's one of the positives of social media and instant Absolutely. information. So it's a, it's a great medium, but it can be dangerous. All right. So in terms of business growth, essentially, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying have a good product or service, do what you say you're going to do, be solid and do a good job, then use marketing to expand that message to people and your business will grow. And it can be as easy as that, but they all need to play well with each other within your own ecosystem. So whether it be social marketing, whether it be doing a good job, good product, et cetera, et cetera, you need all those components. Consistency. Um, correct. So yeah. you can be the best at your trade, your skill, whatever it may be, but unless everybody knows about you or someone else knows about you, it's irrelevant. Yeah. So it's not a matter of people you know, do business with people they know. They have to know you before they do business. Yeah. So you need to get your name out there. Now, Right Property Group offers three main services. Tell me about buyer's advocacy. It's an industry where if we compare it to the United States, probably 80% of all transactions are done with the help of a buyer's advocate. Uh, and quite simply, a buyer's advocate is the exact opposite of a real estate agent. So a buyer's advocate acts for the buyer. So yep. they identify, find the property within that scope they negotiate the best fees and charges. Now, whether that be with their ability to be able to negotiate, because uh, they do it every day, whether it be from the relationships they've formed with certain agents, um, whether it be identifying new areas. So when I started, there was probably only six of us in Australia at that right. point. Uh, but we took it a step further. So rather than being uh, a buyer's advocate, we quickly realised through my own experience that there was something missing in the back end. Because when you buy property, there's a million moving parts. Yeah. Uh, so we created an ecosystem where, because uh, we only deal with really investors, it's numbers driven then yeah. for us and for them. So we create investment portfolios uh, spread over the nation. So we have our buyer's advocate, we're property investment strategists as well, so or advisors, so we can put together strategies and plans for the future. Uh, and then we have a ongoing consultancy piece to us because it's not just about buying the property, it's how you control it afterwards. You know? Yeah. And so there's that three-team 
um, approach. We're a fee-for-service yep. and it has to be that model because they're acting in your interest as the buyer. So if it's a percentage-based scenario, it mm. kind of defeats the purpose because then they should be paying more so they earn more. Yeah. Um, now, there are some people out there that do do that. I, I just It's not me. I'm fee-for-service and, and that's what it is. We like to have reviews um, as often as we can during the year because people's circumstances change, their plans, their goals, the market. So it's a, it's a matter of um, just like you would potentially see your accountant, we're the guys that give you the advice on what to do next or what not to do next uh, in terms of your own asset classes. And, and we plot and we plan for when that next purchase might be or to sit on your hands for the next three years. There's a, there's awful lot of similarities between your business and ours yeah. in terms of, uh, well, firstly, the transparency around fees, but then, you know, the quarterly milestone meetings to see how we're going and then strategically thinking over the longer term. The other similarity between our industry is that we both have sharks in the industry. Oh, gotcha. I'm sure you get emails from SEO people every day. I do and we do SEO. Yeah, yeah. And there's certainly a reputation around in the real estate industry of you know, sort of the sleazy end of things. And you guys are approaching that, doing something quite different to the rest of the market. And that's the point of difference, so it makes you stand out. I mean, there are others now that our industry's becoming quite um, well-known, and so there are, there are a lot of people starting up, and I like that. You know, I love competition. Competition's good for the consumer, and it keeps you sharp as an employer yeah. or a business person. But you are right. Our industry, there is a lot of untoward people because it's big money. You know, there wouldn't be a, a week go past where I don't get offered secret commissions from developers uh, and marketing companies and, and the like. And if you were that way wired, you could make a pretty handsome living. Yeah, off, off and being, people do. They do, yeah. which is why initially I joined an organisation, Property Investment Professionals of Australia, which was about protecting the consumer, lobbying government for legislation because we're an unlegislated industry. Yeah. Digital marketing is the same. Yeah. yeah. Bit of the Wild West. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and then later on, I was invited to join the board where we're continually lobbying government to say regulators. Yeah. We, we want it because... Yeah, because it helps the good guys. Correct. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that's fallen on deaf ears for the last sort of eight to ten years. But we hope that we're going to get there. But we're also... We're also there to protect the industry, so we, we lobbied very hard against certain tax changes that were going to be at the last election. We were an awareness piece for the consumer as well. You mentioned secret commissions, and uh, whenever you buy a property, the uh, real estate agent that sold it to you is getting paid a commission from the vendor, right? There's yeah. a percentage. But if you go and buy an investment property off the plan, what's going on there? The agent still gets a commission. The developer has their margin. There's probably a marketing company involved. There's quite a lot of fees or commissions in there. Now, I'm not trying to kill an off-the-plan industry. We don't do them. I don't agree with them as an investment asset-grade uh, property. But some of those commissions that we're offered are up to 6%. And so that's a lot of money, you know, and a half a million dollar asset, and that's $30,000. So if they're going to give us $30,000. There's a developer's margin, yeah. who they're entitled to because they've got all the skin in the game. But then there's a marketing company component, then there's a real estate agent. Well, the, Who's the, paying the, prob the, the problem with secret commission isn't the commission, it's the secret. It's the disclosure piece. Yeah. Give the consumer the option to say, okay, I know how much you're earning, I'm happy with that or not. Yeah. And in, in a buyer's advocacy space, it's here it is. Here's up the fee for service. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Complete quite, transparency. Yeah. That's not saying that our way is the only way. It's just 
the only way that I sleep at night. Yeah, <laughs> no, I hear you. So I know that you have a real uh, relationship ethic with Right Property Group. How do you work that out? The way to describe it would be that we deal with billions of dollars worth of property and that always weighs heavy on my shoulders as mm. the business owner. So if you do the right thing, then the right thing will happen. And that's as simple as it can be in, in my eyes. Uh, but the relationship and the collaboration that we have with our clients as well as our team is ever so important. So it's not transactional, it's relationship-based. Uh, yeah. And that's probably the key to it all. Couldn't agree more, yeah. So in business for 17 years, mm-hmm. it hasn't all been rainbows and roses. What's, what's maybe the greatest challenge or something that you've had to overcome? Because I think people find that encouraging to go, Steve's suffered just like me. He's just yeah, the same yeah, yeah. and he's overcome. You know, there's a lot of rah-rah, you can do it, never give up, and that's all fine. Actually, it's really good. Mm. But the other side of that is there's something I need to not give up on and there's obviously some difficulty. And when you tell both sides of the story, it's actually very encouraging. Yeah. But if you just tell the success bit, it can be quite discouraging because you're saying, I'm better than you. Yeah. I, I got through this without any ha- hassles. Yeah. And nobody ever did. Never. <laughs> and, and I think that's the problem because people, if they only think that there is never any challenges, when they start out and they hit a challenge, they fold like a cheap pocket knife because right. they're not expecting it. Yeah. For me, the, the challenges that I always face is twofold. Things that are out of my control, and that is government policy. But the other, I think, what most businesses will face in terms of challenges is the resources aspect. You know, whether that be staffing, programs, technology, that's always a constant challenge. And when to pull the trigger on that, to be ahead of the game or to be reactive and that's always been a challenge uh, for me because you don't, as a business owner, you don't want to get to that point of you know, diminishing returns, but you don't want the customer experience to slip as well. So sometimes you've just got to be on the front foot and spend it before you have it. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's just as wise to keep your hands in your pocket. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you talked about cutting things early if something's not going right. What's the indications that you should be cutting at yeah. something quick? Good question. I think that's quite a sort of an individualised bucket of reasons. For me, it's how much headspace does it take up and you know, time reward, whether it is going to complement the ecosystem that I've already created. And yeah, this is how you move forward is you're always trying to plug something else in um, because that's what we do but identifying whether it's going to work you know, is where the magic is sometimes you give things a little bit more time it's due process yeah due process for me i've always found it though anything that we've tried that hasn't worked and there's been a few things um, has always been not so much around the byproduct or what it produces Um, It's been around how do I fit that in with extra resources and are those extra resources, brackets, staff, are they going to um, be the right people at the end of the day? And in certain things that we've tried, trying to find staff or team members for that part of the industry is near impossible. And so you begin to clutch and that's that's a really good sign for me is once you start to sacrifice certain components of what works for you, then that's a cutaway moment for me. Okay. The new thing is costing the main thing. 
Correct. Probably get rid of the new thing. Yeah, and it's <laughs> and it's not even costing, not even from a monetary point of view, from a headspace point okay. of view. It's causing stress or... Yeah. yeah, not so much stress, but consumption of your mind. You know, if you've right. got something working really, really well and then suddenly you've got no attention for it because of the new shiny thing that you're trying to, trying to create. So new shiny things come up quite often in these, they do. <laughs> these they, discussions they because do. anybody who's entrepreneurial tends to like new shiny things. We like creation though. Yeah. It, at the end of the day, we like to create. We, yeah. we like to add value to whether it be our own circumstances or to the client or whatever it may be or to the business. Um, and if you're not growing, you're dying. So you should be doing something. Yes. It's just identifying, well, that hasn't worked. I'll move on. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully you don't suffer too much. Yeah. And I think as entrepreneurs, we often have a vision and we see it working and it's awesome. And uh, mm. then some you've kind of got to die to that idea at some point. Yeah. If it hasn't worked. Because not everything works and that's okay. That's it, 100% that, and that's okay. Yeah. That's right. And be that person that's tried something sort of all in yep. as opposed to sitting on the sidelines shoulda, woulda, coulda yeah. and then having a chip on your shoulder that everybody else has done okay and you haven't because you didn't have a go. You didn't have a go. Yeah, that was probably a bit harsh but that's how <laughs> I see it. <laughs> well, I think that's a good piece of advice to finish with, Steve. Have a go, get in, get some skin in the game. Thank you for your wisdom and advice and for Pleasure to sharing be your story. It was awesome. Thanks for coming along. That was Steve Waters, and you can find out more about what he does at writepropertygroup.com.au. Steve also has a podcast. It's called Investing Insights. So, James, tell me, how would you market a professional services business? Yeah, so Steve's business is a highly complex service. So what he's talking about and what he does is complicated. And buying property is the most expensive purchase there is. So it's the most expensive commodity uh, in, in the entire economy. So when you mix high complexity and high value, what's really important is to get a lot of trust. Mm. Now, when we talked to Karen in episode five from Courage on Kitchen, her business is actually the exact opposite. It's not very complex. It's lavosh. People understand what it is and they know how to use it. And it's not very expensive. You buy it in a in a Woolworths or a Coles. In that case, you want to get a lot of people to know a little bit about your business. But with Steve, it's the exact opposite. You want a few people to know a lot about you because they need to know quite a lot about you before they're going to trust you. Yeah. And that's where content marketing comes in. Definitely. So he's got a podcast. You can listen to him and his business partner talking and you get an understanding of what they do and you can decide whether you like what it is they do or not. Uh, and then they do some other things on their social media, like they use a lot of video. They do. Now, you're the social media expert. Tell us about video. Yeah, well, look, as you said, so they sit on that quadrant where it's it's highly complex. So, like, people understand property. We all live in a home, but we don't necessarily understand investing in property. Yeah. And that's where video is really, really powerful or can be really powerful. So Steve and his business partner, they'll do Facebook Lives and they do videos explaining insights into the real estate industry, which for somebody who's looking at investing and is looking at possibly investing in right property group, that gives them a lot of information and allows them time to build up trust. So you can see their face, you can hear the conversation, you understand their strategy, you kind of get to know them and then you can opt in. That's right. You get to know them without having to even meet them. 
Yeah. And then you, you've already got a level of understanding about what it is they do and who they are. And for a business owner to do that, it requires some discipline because you have to take the time to sit down and have that conversation. It's not hard. What is hard is finding the time to step out of your business to give marketing a little bit of yeah, a, yeah. a little bit of uh, time to breathe. You've got to get a bit organised with it. Yeah. Uh, in this case, given the business that they're in, I think it's clearly worth putting the time aside because giving that people that education is really what's going to help convert prospects into customers. That's right. In next week's episode, we're changing gears completely. You'll meet Laura Turner, the founder of Wild Indiana. Laura is the entrepreneur who first brought silicon babies bowls into Australia. And now all the big names have copied her, but she was the trendsetter. I think Laura's story is going to really resonate with a lot of you. She's one of those people who started out in business almost by accident. It began as a hobby and just kept on growing. Laura's a mum of little ones herself. She has a real heart to inspire and encourage other mums. And in our interview, she shares a lot of the important business lessons she and her husband Luke have learnt along the way. This episode of Getting to the Heart of Business was brought to you by The Online Co. It was produced by Claire Bruce, music by Harry Parnwell, and you can find us at theonlineco.net. If you think this has been helpful, we'd love you to share it with a friend or colleague. Uh, subscribe to us and we'd love you to leave us a review. Take care.